There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Baghdad Sound Wars. Hello, I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. And today on Baghdad Soundwalks, we're digging deeper into the culture that took root in medieval Baghdad. That's right. It's time for the warrior nerds. Yay! <laughs> I kid, but it's also a little bit true. I mean, these medieval Muslims really imagined themselves as scholarly warriors, poets, philosophers, knights, and cavaliers. I do too, if I may say so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Ali. Now, this elite class that I sort of mentioned, this is known as Hassa. And there's sort of two related concepts. Just We're going to learn a lot of Arabic in this episode. The Fata and the Furusiya. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to need some definitions for these, please. <laughs> yeah, let's slow down. So first is the Hassa. The Hassa is this warrior elite culture. It's the scholarly elite. And it really comes out of this idea that the Abbasids were originally people who mingled with the Persians. And that mingling of an older memory of Arab warriors with local Persians created this sort of elite warrior class known as the, the Hasar. And that's related to the Fatah. The Fatah are the actual warriors themselves. It's their knight's code, if you will. In the same way that you find knights have chivalry, you're going to find this Fatah warrior class associated with the Hasa. And then there's the Furusiya, and the Furusiya is all about horses. It's all about horseback riding and fighting off of horses. There's actually a really funny story that will give you an example of what I'm talking about, this warrior elite ethos. There's this case in medieval Baghdad where one man in the midst of an argument, slaps another man. And slapping is a big no-no in face. the Hassa culture. Yeah, on the face. It's considered a oh. big taboo. And because of the slapping, it leads to a duel. And the duel is a horseback jousting, if you will, between these two knights that literally leads to one of them killing the other all over a slap to the face. So that gives you an idea of this sort of warrior elite class of horse riders that emerges during this time period. Do you know something really interesting? That culture still exists definitely in Egyptian yep. culture. If ever you were yeah. to get into a fight or anything, you just do not slap people on the face. It's so disrespectful. Yes, the slapping of the face remains a taboo in a lot of the Middle East, and it's tied to some Islamic ideas, but also this connection to Hassa and Furusiya culture. Couldn't help but notice that you were describing a very bro-y culture and all the definitions involved men. 
Dina, there was a lot of testosterone. <laughs> Warrior nerds. <laughs> yeah, we can't deny it. But the way they saw themselves was also pretty different. They were fighters, yes, that's true. But they also were poets at heart. For them, true manliness or masculinity was in the shedding of tears over beauty and witty dialogue and pondering the mysteries of the universe. So yeah, they were tussling and fighting, but then they'd be sitting around and talking about the latest philosopher. You really wouldn't think that from the descriptions and the definitions, you wouldn't think they had this sensitive deep side at all. Oh yeah, they had a great appreciation for beauty. Think about how we have hobbies today, and those hobbies have cultures of their own. Yeah, of course, like CrossFit, MMA, all the martial arts. Though maybe with a little bit more of a philosophical bent, I think you're right on the track with martial arts there. Men in this time period would practice sword fighting as an art. They would practice chess and rhetoric, so right alongside each other. They'd be master of the horse, and they'd be master of calligraphy. So we see a blending of art and martial prowess. Where did they find the time to master all of these things? I mean, they had a lot more time than we did back then. <laughs> I'm getting tired <laughs> no just hearing about that. <laughs> and you mentioned horses. They must have been very important. Oh, yes. I mean, it was a way of demonstrating you were part of this elite culture. Horseback riding, taming, equestrian contests. They were the soul of this culture. It was also a status symbol to be able to tame and ride horses. It still is, isn't it, Ali, though? I know that's definitely true in Egypt. Oh, no, it's absolutely true. Have you actually ever ridden a horse? Uh, I'm scared to answer this question. So when I was younger, yes. Not so much now. Um, not that I'm scared of them or anything, but I just feel bad. Yeah, I totally <laughs> get it. But I mean, if you've ever seen a horse, they're really elegant creatures and they're also Beautiful. incredibly tall. Yeah, They're way taller than you realize. The first time I saw a horse, I'm like, hold on a minute. Yeah, This doesn't look right. This doesn't look like it looks on TV. <laughs> oh yeah, or Instagram. It does, this is not what I saw online. <laughs> this is way too big of a creature. <laughs> Was it common to have horses in every household then in Baghdad? You know, Dina, not in every household, but any household that fancied themselves an elite Remember the status symbol. And of course, at this time period, houses were large. There were compound-like dwellings. You probably still see them in the Middle East to this day. Yeah. Large dwellings with extended families, even enslaved people, house managers, tutors. And then they always had some type of nearby barn on the property with their horses. Just imagine for a moment the large walls with sturdy doors opening up to a courtyard with a small water fountain, a private water fountain for the family. Benches around with cushions, small trees, plants, and a space to congregate. It's an area where families would live. Yeah, it's a very communal space. It still stands now for a lot of Middle Eastern cultures. The whole idea is to create a space for everyone to come together. Yeah, there was space for the entire extended family and, of course, the staff. And you had to have these shared spaces, places you could lounge, you could talk, and most importantly, feast. Whether you're Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, Baghdad's home life was all about those large feasts with family and friends. Late dinners were very common, and this remains true in the Middle East, even today. I love that as you're telling me all of this information, some of it still stands true. I know for a fact, 
I would never eat dinner in my household until everyone has arrived. Even if dad was working late or if mom was working late, it doesn't matter. We wait to eat together because it's more than food, isn't it? It's so much more than food. And that's what I love about history, particularly this region, because you're not just looking about the past. You're also looking to see how that past still shapes culture to this day. So people of Middle Eastern background who are listening to us talk about 9th century Baghdad are going, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Yeah, That's because it was the basic building block of the social unit and it remains true to this day. The household, it really bound, you know, everyone together. And it was in turn bound by a culture that cherished learning and beauty making, warriors and philosophers, scholars and merchants. I can't help but think this really sounds great if you're wealthy or if you're a man. But what about people outside of that, Ali? Yeah, you're getting right to the rub of it, Dina, now. It's getting it spicy sounds, now. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great if you've got money, right? Elite culture is always great for people who happen to be elite. <laughs> yeah. And this is important because it's at this moment that we do start to see the introduction of the seclusion among elite women. It's not actually that common in Islamic history before this, but around 9th century Baghdad, and it's really the Abbasids that are going to introduce this idea of the harem, something that we're going to talk about in the future. That said, ordinary women were far more free in many regards. They mingled into the city, they walked about, and they had professions of their own. This is really just elite culture where we're going to see some seclusion of women. That's really interesting because working women were part of the intellectual culture, they worked as translators, but you're telling me the more elite they got, the more secluded they were. Yeah, there's a bit of a handoff. And again, we'll talk more about this, but elite women could become scholars in their own right, but generally within the household as their main base of operations. They learned in the house, they continued to work in the house. But ordinary women, women that were from a working class background, they could be part of the Bait al-Hikmah, the house of wisdom. Okay, so I'm not going to start. I'm going to save it for the future episodes when we talk about the harem, as you said, but... It sounds like women, nothing has changed in terms of always having a trade-off. So you're either an elite woman and have access to wealth and power but have to stay secluded, or you got to work. Um, were ordinary households built the same as these gorgeous communal homes that you mentioned earlier? To a more modest scale, I would say, the differences really between commercial sites like Kharq, where you had this wealth, versus the poorer parts like Harabiya, that's real, very real. But they're still communal. But their congregation spots would be more open, for example. It would not be uncommon to find in poor household that they don't have a large courtyard, but they would gather on the rooftop. And you can still see some of those rooftop spaces in places in the Middle East. They're furnished with small rugs and cushions. Oh my God, yes, the iconic rugs. I don't know a Middle Eastern or North African home that doesn't have either a really red one or a really blue one. Oh yeah, I have mine. I shamelessly admit that I have a rug and it is beautiful. I mean, get a hookah and share some scary stories with your cousins on a breezy summer night. What could be better than that? Can you share a scary story with me? I will someday. <laughs> and you mentioned that this was a wealthy time period, clearly by your descriptions. And obviously from what we see, it's very, very clear. 
But I presume this is because of what we spoke about last time, the idea of the city's location and the purpose of the city was to draw in merchants, right? Truth, you're thinking like a historian. You bring in the merchants and it makes everybody rich a little bit. And what would you say stands out the most about the culture of this time period in this city? There seems to be some real differences for me in class and rank. The elites relish in this luxury and obviously that's all made possible by trade. But how did the other half live? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what we're seeing here first is that elite culture and beauty, it makes its way even into the lowest parts of the town. There's a democratizing of the benefits of wealth, if you will. So everyone has a hobby. Everyone has connections to this intellectual culture, but there's differences in it. If you're an elite person, that philosopher is coming to your house. If you're a poor person, you're listening to the philosopher in the tea shop. If you're elite, you would raise horses. If you were poor, you would raise pigeons. And even beggars, for example, had their place in the city. There's stratification, but there are places like soup kitchens and mosques where beggars could live. And there are, of course, people that were outside of this system. But on the whole, what we're looking at is an integrated society with stratification and differences in power and class, but one whole Abbasid society. Would they ever mix or was it strictly the elite with the elite and the poor with the poor? They would mix in the streets and particularly in marketplaces, something that we'll be talking about in future episodes. And that's what makes Baghdad so unique, that even in this moment of stratification of elite versus poor, there are places where they mingle. Baghdad is really starting to come alive for me. Next week, let's go even deeper into the harem. But for now, I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. And this is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to Echoes of History podcast so you don't miss the next episode of Baghdad Soundwalks. See you next time, travelers. Travelers.